page number is 749 in that particular Bible that we hand out, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Um, so while you're flipping there, though, let me uh, just make a few comments. I'm wondering this morning, as I was sort of looking at this text, uh, I'm wondering, do you get excited about re- receiving things? Do you get excited about receiving things? We have a porch at our house that's the perfect porch for receiving packages. Um, it's on the side of the house. It's upstairs, so if you're walking by, you can't see any packages sitting on the porch. So they're all hidden there. And, and, and UPS guys love it because they don't have to worry about anybody stealing their packages. They can just set them on the porch. And then uh, we come home, and we see the packages there, and you know, there's six of us, and, and, and it, it might have my name on it, but it could be for anybody, right? And so everybody gathers around with excitement and enthusiasm. What's in the package? Uh, let's open it. And, and so everybody, t- whoever gets there, tears into it, and we open it up, and it's a part for the dishwasher, right? Uh, and Oh, bummer. And what's funny about that is that the next time a package comes, there'll be that same excitement and enthusiasm, right? Um, oh, it could be something, because there's possibility in packages, there's hope. There's, there's possibility of something great. So they come, and, and we all tear into it. And all, oh, it's your algebra book, book for this year. Um, you know, oh, bum. But then the next package, there'll still be the sense of hope and excitement. What could it be? Something great. Uh, what about your cell phone? Do you, do you find that um, you know, when there's that little buzz in your pocket or you hear the little jingle, you, know, you wonder, who is it who's reaching out to me? And you, you're, some of you, even right now, you just got one. And, and it's a sermon, and you're like, I can't open my phone in the sermon. Um, I'll pretend like I'm reading my Bible, maybe, and I'll look at it, and I'll see who texted me, because I have to know. Sometimes I get texts that say, there's been a package delivered on your doorstep. <laughs> so then I'm really excited, because I get the double whammy of excitement about the text, and then the package on the doorstep. So there's something about receiving something that's hopeful, right, and brings us that kind of Woo, what's it going to be? Um, today's uh, passage is about receiving something, something that I, I can't even compare to a package. It's so much more wonderful. It's the kingdom of God. And uh, the kingdom of God is sort of the everything that God is doing in the world. And don't you want to receive that? Don't you want to be a part of that? We know sort of in, intuitively, deep down, we know that we want to be a part. We want to be a part of what God is doing in this world. We want to receive the ministry of God in our lives. And so today, um, we're not going to spend our time explaining what that ministry is so much, but more how is it that you receive it? How is it that you receive God's work in the world into your life, into the context uh, of your life, uh, this beautiful thing that God wants to bring? How, how do you sort of have a porch like mine, okay, where it's really easy to leave a package on there? Right? How do you receive what God is doing? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So uh, Luke cha- chapter... Uh, 18, looking in verse 9. And let me read this as we get started. Uh, Verse 9, he also told this parable, that's Jesus, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, a couple of words on the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you really strip away all the pieces, what's at the core of the Pharisee uh, and, you, you know, you can't simplify people like this, but I'm going to. Um, what's at the core is, is self-righteousness, this, this sense that I'm righteous because of what I do, and I'm, I'm good before God and before others because of what I do. I take care of myself, I make myself good, and therefore uh, I'm acceptable. So this is, the, the, the Pharisee is a good person, 
The Pharisee considers himself a good person. Now, we've got different versions of this in our world, right? We've got the secular version of this. If you live in the Bay Area, you know there's certain norms about being a Bay Area person, right? And if you follow those norms, you get the right kind of car, and you, you, you are for the right kind of causes and all of that, then you are a good person in a sense, right? And, and you can fill in the blanks of what those are. But we also have those within the church context, too. We have this sense of, well, if I do these things and I show up at these places and I, I practice these disciplines, then I'm a good person, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm following through, and, and I, I'm sort of in control of this whole deal, and so my righteousness is, is because of me, myself. It's self Righteousness. Um, and the tax collector now is on the, on the flip, flip side of that in some respects. He's selfish. The, the core of the tax collector uh, is, is a selfish kind of person, at least in the understanding of, of what a tax collector would mean to the people who were listening to Jesus tell this parable. The tax collector was probably some sort of farmer who on the side also collected taxes. He paid the government to be able to have this privilege of collecting taxes from everybody around him. Now, uh, that, that process was fraught with all kinds of corruption. And so the tax collector, you didn't become a tax collector you know, because you wanted to serve your community. You became a tax collector because it was a, there were lots of loopholes and you could make a lot of money. And so uh, the tax collectors would exploit those loopholes and they had the power of the government behind them so they could force people to pay things and then they could take the, sort of the cream off the top and it was a very lucrative business. And so uh, it was a self-centered kind of thing. So the tax collector represents this kind of Selfishness. Now we have we have this 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 is the bad person, right? So you have the good person and the bad person, and we we have a couple versions of this too in our world. You have the secular version, you know, who's who's sort of going off and, and just doing whatever and scoff law uh, in the world, and, and and we know we we know people like that. We we've been people like that. We are people like that. Um, but we also have more of the sacred version within the church, right? Somebody who 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 understands the gospel and yet is just caught in this lifestyle that continues to. To, 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 uh, to, to abuse the laws of God and, and to live in a selfish kind of way. And we all are, are that person as well. And so we can connect into these two, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you would think that one of these would be the obvious choice to be the receiver of the kingdom of God. And, you know, unless you've, you've read this before, which you, you probably have, um, it's not the one you think, right? It's not the one you think who would be the obvious choice to receive this wonderful gift, the kingdom of God. Let's read on. I'm in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. So they're in the temple. The Pharisee's praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus finishes the parable, this man went down to his house justified, the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 15, parable number two, very much like the first one. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. They, they wanted, you know, any rabbi, you come and get a blessing. So they're bringing the, 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 the young children. Uh, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Them. 
They rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom, there's that word receive and the kingdom we were talking about, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, these are two parables, one lesson wrapped up in both the parables. First of all, they're both about approaching God. Did you notice that? One's approaching God in the temple. One is approaching God, Jesus Christ. Both contain two types of people. So on the one side, you've got the Pharisees and the disciples. And then on the other side, you have the tax collector and the children. Two groups you wouldn't put together normally, right? But you have the Pharisees and the disciples. Those are the in crowd. And then you have the out crowd, the tax collector and the children. Both involve, both parables involve this great reversal. The ins, the in people end up out, and the out people end up in. Okay? In both, in both parables it happens. And both end with a lesson that's somewhat connected to this. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, the same lesson. And here's the lesson. Humble people receive the kingdom. Humble people receive the kingdom. Now, what is the kingdom? In, 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 there's two emphases in, in these two different parables. In the first one, it's about favor with God. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So it's, it's about how do, you, how, do you, how do you have favor with God? Um, and, 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 and their answer uh, is themselves. And, and, and the tax collector gets favor with God because of God's mercy. In the second parable, the kingdom is described as presence. So we have favor with God in the first one and presence with God in the second one. That's the essence of being in the kingdom, is being in the presence of God, of the king who is over the kingdom. That's the greatest thing about the kingdom, is the king and being in the presence of the king. And the children who are far off, which is another theme in this, there's a closeness and far off kind of theme, back and forth. The children who are far off are brought near to Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom. And so you've got both of these things going on in these two parables. Access to the, to, 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 to the, to the kingdom comes by humility, the text seems to be saying. Not arrogance and not pride. Now, humility is one of my favorite topics. If you've been part of Salon Community Church for a while, you know that. Um, it's one of my favorites because I like to be able to help other people uh, in this area, Right? Not because I particularly need to, you know, no. Um, that was a joke, definitely. Um, there's a reason it's one of my favorites. Um, it's a favorite topic of mine. And so I've done some study and some, some research on it. And let me just, um, you know, it's one thing for my favorite topic, but it's kind of one of the key topics for a lot of great Christian thinkers and writers. So let me just throw out a few to you. Andrew Murray, some quotes here. Um, Andrew Murray says, humility is the root of the Christ life. 
the root is not something on the periphery. The root is at the center. The root is, is key and core. And Andrew Murray, uh, a great Christian thinker, one of my favorites, he wrote a book called Humility. Um, read it. Uh, it's great. If, a, if you write a book called Humility and it's still in print, it's probably a good book because it's not the kind of topic that people gravitate to. Humility is the root of the Christ life. C.S. Lewis says, humility is the center of Christian morals. Humility is the center of Christian morals. Jonathan Edwards, fairly good Christian thinker, uh, the pleasures of humility are really the most refined, inward, and exquisite delights in the world. John Stott, another one we like to quote, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. You know, they're not just saying humility is sort of important. They're saying, each one of them, that humility is at the core and pride is the core enemy. John Wesley, true humility is a kind of self-annihilation and this is the center of all virtues. Um, C.J. Mahaney, another one. Throughout our time on this earth, I don't have it up there, and in every arena of our lives, you and I share a common greatest enemy, pride. And then C.S. Lewis, again, I don't have it up there for you, but he, he goes on to say this. He says, I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort, or taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing. To get even near it, that is humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Now what's fascinating is these are mature Christian thinkers that we put up on a pedestal. We say, well, they really understood it. And here they're saying the center of it all is, is humility in terms of virtues. And they're saying, I haven't got it figured out yet. I'm, I'm still working on this. I wish I had gotten fa farther in humility than I've gotten. So this is why it's kind of a favorite topic. Now, what I love about the text that we were given this morning uh, in the Gospel of Luke is that it really helps us uh, in the sort of management of this process because humility is something that we embrace and we love and we grasp. And then without us really thinking about it, and maybe it's because the enemy slips in and, and figures out ways to pull us, or it's just our own pride creeping back in. It's like you have, you, you, you've got to be constantly pulled back to humility. And pride is ever just sort of standing at the edge, waiting to sort of take over as, and be the prime spot of virtues in your life. And so there's, a, there's kind of a process of, of vigilance that goes along with our, uh, our, our becoming humble people. Um, it's, it's not a one and done kind of a thing. And, and what I love about this, this passage that we've been given today is that it helps us in that vigilance process. And so uh, in my car, um, I have an older car, and so this is happening more and more frequently, but um, there are lights on the dashboard, and when there's something that goes wrong, the light turns yellow, right? And, and it might be an engine situation. Uh, it might be that it needs an oil change, um, you know, whatever, it could be the, the, the tires, you know, now they're putting the tire, you know, thing, which doesn't really work anyway, but they're putting that in there, um, your tires are low, uh, and, so, and so these little dashboard lights come off, and what do you do? You look at the dashboard light, and you say, okay, uh, there's a problem, I need to go into the shop, 
or if I can fix it, take it in my garage or my driveway and fix this, um, or I'll take it into the shop and, and get it fixed. So it's, it's, it's sort of a warning light um, for your car. Well, in this text, we've got warning lights for our souls. That's what the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector and then the disciples and the children give us as kind of a warning light for our souls. And so there are a number of these. Um, so I want to talk a little bit from this text about, first of all, signs of pride and signs of humility. Signs of pride and signs of humility. If you see the one, you need to get into the shop. And I don't know what that means necessarily. Get to your home group and talk to people. Maybe it means getting into your prayer closet and opening your Bible and praying. Maybe it means getting next to somebody that you trust and talking to them about what it is that you're noticing in your life. If you see signs of pride. If you see, if you, and, and what you want to pursue are the signs of humility. So first of all, the signs of pride. And let's look at this uh, this uh, Pharisee here, he gives us lots of, uh, of, of, of warning lights, uh, what it means to be a prideful person. First of all, he says, he talks, uh, it, it, Jesus tells us that he's standing uh, away by himself, not far off, but, but scholars think that what actually is happening is a group of people there, and the Pharisee is standing closer in. He's gone into the temple itself while the rest are gathered on the outside. Um, because he's different from them, and he views himself as being different from them. Um, so he's in him potentially in the inner court, um, and he's sort of set himself above and away from the rest. And the lesson that we learn from this, the warning, the sign that we see, is that sometimes an indicator of pride is isolation, when we want to isolate ourselves from others. Now, this can be tough because wrapped up in that sometimes is, is some self-loathing, too. Sometimes we want to isolate ourselves from others because we don't like ourselves. And usually what's happening there is a sort of a toggling between not liking ourselves and not liking others and back and forth. And C.S. Lewis cuts through that with a wonderful statement that he made about pride. He says, um, essentially, and I, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, he says, humility is neither self-loathing nor self-love, but self-forgetfulness. See, self-loathing on some level is still an obsession with self. So we often confuse those two. The humility is about self. I I need to hate myself. I need to denigrate myself. And that's not uh, the biblical form of it. The biblical form of humility is to get lost, not in self, but in who God is and his greatness and his grandeur and his, 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 uh, his eminence over everything. Um, that's what humility in the Bible is. So, um, so there's a sign, if we have this tendency to isolate ourselves, we don't, we, we, it can be a sign that uh, pride is creeping in. Look at the Pharisee's posture. It says that he stood. Now, it's okay to stand uh, to pray. Uh, that was a very common thing to do in, in the New Testament times. They would stand to pray. But here, he's contrasted with the tax collector who takes a very different posture. And so uh, it definitely seems to be saying that, that this is an issue for him uh, that he's standing, uh, and so his posture is reflective. And so uh, it's okay for us to evaluate our posture. What is it? How are we, how are we uh, moving through the world, and how do we sit, and how do we stand in relation to others? Um, there's something about what's going on inside of us that oozes out in our posture. And so we look at that as a sign for whether or not we're slipping into pride. Um, number three, he's uh, engaged in this process of self-validating. Did you notice this? that five times he uses the word I. 
I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Over and over again, he's using this term, I. And he's using it as a, in a process of sort of self-validation. And so when do we know, when do we, when do we see if we're slipping into pride? Um, when when, when we have this continuous obsessive need to validate ourselves in front of others, to explain why we do what we do, um, because we feel like we need to make sure that the person in front of us is validating us. Um, when we're doing that, we're not resting in the validation that comes from God. And this is the key This is one of the key points of this whole passage. There's validation that comes from God, and there's validation that comes from us, or that we try to get from ourselves. And when we're trying continually to validate ourselves in front of others, we're not resting in the validation that comes from God. What is the validation that comes from God? Well, you were made in the image of God. You turned away from God in sin. God did not decide to leave you that way, but he decided to pursue you, to come after you. First in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel, and when that failed, to come after you in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and he modeled what it means to love God and to live in the way he intended. And at the end of his life, he offered himself a sacrifice of atonement on the cross for your sin, In his death, atonement was made for the sins of the world. And afterwards, God raised Jesus from the dead as a statement that, yes, in fact, sin has been overcome because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So if death has been overcome, then sin has been overcome. And that act is a statement on your life, a validating statement on your life. It says, more than what anybody you respect could say about you. More than what you could ever say about yourself to anybody. God has made a statement about you that trumps them all. I love you. I'm willing to die for you. You are mine. You are validated in me, not because of anything you do. You cannot validate yourself, but because of who I am. All that you need, all all the value and the worth and the importance and the significance you could ever desire is already upon you because of me and what I've said about you in my son, Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate validation. There is no greater one, and yet we keep seeking for others. We keep trying to find other reasons for us to be validated that would be greater than that, and there are none. That's it. The greatest statement that can be made about you is what Jesus made, said, through his life and his death and his resurrection on the cross. And so when we find ourselves slipping into that self-validation mode, if I do this, they'll like me. If I I do this, I'll like me. Um, If I do this, they'll respect me. If I do this, then we know we're slipping down that path. It's It's the warning light on the dashboard. Take a look. Go into the shop. Remind yourself of what's true of you, the most important truth 
that there could be. Number four, the Pharisee engages in a good bit of comparison, if you note. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this old tax collector. If we are not being validated in the gospel, then we will seek to validate ourselves oftentimes by comparing ourselves to others. And we'll be asking the question, am I as good as so-and-so? Or at least I'm, and we'll be, these little thoughts will be floating through our head, well, at least I'm not that, at least I'm better than that. And if we find ourselves in the comparison mode, then another warning light has gone off and we're slipping down along the prideful path and away from the humility path. And then lastly, actually there's two more, disdain or contempt. Those words simply mean thinking better than. Um, the disciples also struggle with this. In verse 15, we know the Pharisee does. He's thinking he's better than tax collector. In verse 15, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. We're, we're the ones close to Jesus, but you... Can't be close to Jesus right now. He's busy with us. And so you must stay to the side. And so there's a categorization going on there. And in the very beginning of the story of the Pharisee, he also told this parable, verse 9, to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That word is contempt or disdain. And what it simply means is thinking that you're better than somebody else. Now, when none of us, all these... None of us would ever admit or really think that we struggle with any of these things. But they're so insidious, and they sneak in in such subtle ways, and they find new ways to sneak in in our lives. And so I do think, because these great scholars also say this about humility, I do think we need to be on guard against this. Because we have this tendency, and we, 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 we find ever new ways to do it, to compare and to, to ask ourselves or to look down on somebody else. And so here's the question that's floating through my mind. If I'm trying to overly manage who I'm with, then I'm probably struggling with some contempt or some disdain. If I'm trying to overly manage the people I'm around and who I'm with, you know. Now, we do that in our social lives, you know, who's, who, party, there's a party, oh, who's going to be there, right? Um, and, you know, and, and then we do that in, in more subtle ways in, in the break room at lunch. Um, you walk in, oh, who's, walk in and look through, who's, who's there? Um, do I want to go sit down with that person? We're overly managing the, the, the people with whom we keep company and forgetting that each one is made in the image of God. And it's a sign. It's a sign that we might be slipping towards pride. And then lastly, the Pharisee exhibits this reliance on accomplishment. You know, it's okay to have a list of things that you want to accomplish. Um, I, I love lists. It's okay to do your list, to check things off when you do lists. But where you get in trouble is when your identity is wrapped up in your list. Now, whether it be spiritual things, and the, and the, 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 the um, Pharisee has a, has a whole list of spiritual things. He's a faster. He does it. You, know, you really only had to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, according to the Old Testament. So he's doing twice a week. So he's all that in terms of fasters. Um, and he gives a, a tithe on everything that he gets. And so he's able to check those boxes very, very clearly and boldly. Um, and, 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 and that's fine, except that his identity is wrapped up in it. It's reflecting back on who he is and whether or not he's worthy and valuable. And that's when we get in trouble, right? That's why we struggle because it's not just that we have a to-do list. It's that the accomplishment of it determines and says something about who we are. 
And again, we're forgetting where our validation comes from at that moment. Now, the tax collector and the children give us a different sort of set of signs if we're on the right path. First of all, here's some things you know if you're on the right path towards humility. You're needy. You're needy. The tax collector normally didn't go to the temple. That's not a place where those kind of people hang out. But he was so desperate and so needy that he goes to the temple. Last week, we talked a little bit about this. If Remember somebody who came and spoke to our congregation years back, uh, our former district superintendent said, if you can't list right now 21 ways in which you desperately need God, then you're in trouble. Now, I don't know if the number 21 is the right number or 10 or 50. I don't know. But the point is, we need to be in touch with our needs right now. And if we're losing touch with our needs, then we're in trouble. And so we need to go back into the prayer closet and get in touch with those. Number two, this, the, 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 the uh, tax collector is, I, I don't know the best way to say it, he's very clear-eyed. He stands far off as he comes to the temple. He stands, remember I, I said there's this whole thing in these parables about closeness and distance. And the, the tax collector stands far off. And why? It seems to be that he appreciates the holiness of God and he knows that he's not holy, and so he stands far off in the sort of appreciation that I don't think, well, the Pharisee boldly walks right into the closest part of the temple, as far as we can best read the text. The, the tax collector stands far off, and he has this, this clear-eyed comprehension of who God is and how holy he is. We're singing this song, Holy Lord, Fall on Us, I think is how the word goes, and I love this song that we've been doing, and it fits perfect with our, our mission for this next year, but I just want to remind us that when we sing, Holy Lord, fall on us, we better be ready for what that means, okay? Because he really is holy. And there might be a bit of conviction of sin that comes when the Holy Lord falls on us. It might be a little uncomfortable, right? Things might happen that we didn't expect because God, he really is holy, right? And the tax collector understands that. He gets it. And so he stands far off. Um, now, there's going to be an invitation, okay? So we're not to remain far off. There's going to be an invitation. But he understands the holiness of God. And at the same time, he's aware of his own sin. This is why it says he beats his breast, the breast of the seat of his sin. And so he has a connection to how his sins have separated him from this holy God. So he's needy, he's clear-eyed, he's aware of his sin. And then just by posture, he's low. To be humble really literally just means to lay low. To lay low. I love the image of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane under the temple, praying. The temple's way up here. He's low in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just praying um, that God would take this cup. He's just the epitome of humility, just sweating blood as he prays to God. That's what humility is, is that sort of low posture. And Jesus exemplifies it. It's the opposite of the Pharisee. And the tax collector exemplifies it. He can hardly lift his eyes up to heaven. His posture reflects what's going on inside of him. And then lastly, I love how the tax collector is God-validated, not self-validated. He says, as he seeks favor with God, not, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, but, oh Lord, be merciful to me. Okay, there's no I in it. It's not about him, it's about God and his tremendous mercy. It's about you, God, not I and what I've done. The tax collector gets something the Pharisee doesn't get. 
which is absolutely core to what it means to follow Jesus Christ and core to, I think, what stops us in our tracks a lot of the time. And that is, is really getting this sense that validation comes from outside of you. It does not come from within. Your favor with God, and then really if you have favor with God, that's the key. Your favor with God comes from without, not from within. And we're on this perpetual search to find it within. And we can't. We were made in His image, but, but we've sinned. And we cannot find that validation within. And if we start to accept, and, and humility is the prerequisite to accepting this, if we accept that our validation is not going to come from I, but from you, God, that's when we can finally absorb the powerful truth that will change everything about who we are in Christ. Now, two parables fit together nicely. Um, one is how we think the tax collector when we approach God, and then the second one with the child is sort of how God thinks of us coming. So here you've got this, this horrible tax collector coming towards God, and this is how he views himself. And then you sort of have God standing on the side, this is how I view you coming towards me as a child. You know how a child comes to you. When I was in uh, Gitarama in, in Rwanda um, several weeks back, um, we were going around the village and, and talking to people and inviting them to this new church we were starting and sharing the gospel. And we came to this one place, and there was a well there. And we, one, of the, one of the people on our team went and started pumping the well. There's a bunch of kids running around and pumped the well for, for the kids to fill up their stuff. And um, we took some pictures of them and showed them the pictures, and we are just having fun. We, and then we were done. We started to walk away. And we're walking away, and all of a sudden, there's this little hand in my hand. And I look down. There's this little guy walking next to me, his hand in my hand. And I figured, well, let's see what happens here. Um, so I kept walking. A mile later, his little hand is still in my hand, right? His name's Thierry. We can't really communicate at all except smiling at each other, and he's asking me things that I, I don't understand. Um, and we get there, and, and then we have those worship service, and we hang out together. And there was something so simple and so sweet about his approach to me, which was just simply to stick his hand in my hand and walk next to me. And we just walked with a group of people. We walked together. And Jesus says, you know how a child does that? That's how you come to God. In that simplicity and that humility, that's how you come. That's how he wants you to come. And so come. Come to Jesus in humility. The Bible says that when we are in that, when we are those open vessel, that, that humble vessel, that, that broken in that low place, that's when the Holy Spirit can fill us. And it's our prayer as a church that not in, just individually, but corporately, we would be filled by the Holy Spirit, that we might be effective in this world, that we might receive the kingdom, right? More and more. And lean into the kingdom. Kingdom just means the reign of God, to live under the reign of God. And Jesus invites us to that life this morning. He says, come, put your hand in my hand, simply and childlike. And walk with me. God, would you help us?
You've already helped us. Would you receive us? In our brokenness and our sin, we come forward to you. We come forward to you at this table we're about to share. In our brokenness and our sin, we come forward like that tax collector or like that child who has nothing to really offer, but is welcome at the table nonetheless. So we come forward. We ask that you guard us against pride and its horrendous effects in our lives. And we ask that you strengthen us through humility as we depend upon you and allow you to be all in all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. When you keep that.